Well, good morning. So happy to see so many smiling faces. I think people are surprised I wore a jacket. Get it, get it out now, that's fine. Um, it's good to be with you all, good to open up the word of the Lord with you. Our sermon text today comes from Psalm chapter 16. We'll be looking at the psalm in its entirety. Uh, if you're using your bulletin, you'll find it on page 8. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 453. Psalm 16. Read along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, for your glory, would you elevate the name of Christ and what is proclaimed today? Would you work by your Spirit to send out your word? to change hearts and minds, to humble us, to change us, to conform us further into the image of Christ, that you might receive the glory. Will we find in you that place of confidence that we so desperately need? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You got me? All right. Craig, thank you. Appreciate that. About 15 years ago, (laughs) about 15 years ago, uh, there was a show uh, that I was completely obsessed with. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen it. The show is Friday Night Lights, and it focused on faith and family and football. Friday Night Lights centered around a, a family, the Taylors, who moved to a small town in Texas, Dillon, Texas. And Coach Eric is a pretty charismatic, loving, caring man, and he always tries to get his players to believe in themselves and to believe in the purpose of the team. And so as they come into the locker room before the game, he's always trying to rile them up. And and the chant that they say together is, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And there's sort of a crescendo that we're aiming at, right? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And they start banging their helmets on the benches and on the lockers. And there's this swelling belief in the team that if we can just muster up enough courage and enough confidence in ourselves, we can't lose. We, we won't lose. Psalm 16 has been seen as a psalm of confidence attributed to King David. And like all the other psalms, we want to think about that psalm in context. So we're going to be taking this psalm and looking at it Uh, through the lens of a few history lessons 
a few snapshots from David's life, both near and far, where we might see these particular words emerging. And we're questioning, where does David's confidence come from? And for us, where can we rightly place our confidence? And so we'll search for an answer to those questions in three points, if you're taking notes. The first point is knowing confidence. Secondly, false confidence. And lastly, true confidence. So knowing confidence, false confidence, and true confidence. The psalm begins, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. There's an imperative here, a call to be preserved by God. And this verse brings out a knowing relationship that David has with the Lord. David has been kept before physically, and he trusts that he will be kept again. When we look at the books of First and Second Samuel, we see many instances of David being kept by the Lord in many different circumstances. Starting in about 1 Samuel chapter 21, David runs to Nob. This is kind of the first time he's moving away from Saul, trying to keep his life. But David keeps on running until he is firmly on the throne. Gibeah, Ramah, yes, Nob, but also, also Gath, Adullam, Mizpah, Masada, Hereth, Ziph, Maon, and Gedi, and Paran. 400 square miles of hard terrain that David is traversing, sometimes by himself, sometimes with small bands of soldiers, trying to keep himself safe, knowing that the Lord is ultimately the one preserving him. Even in his old age, when his son Absalom rebels, David knew that God had kept him and would continue to do so. This served as the basis for his continued call to the Lord. In verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God's faithful, steadfast, promise-keeping love is in view. God is the source of all of David's blessings. Not only does he know that God keeps him, but he has an intimate relationship with God. You are my Lord, David has said. In these first two verses, if we're looking in in the Hebrew text, we also see something unique. David is recognizing a full-orbed relationship with God. He's used the name El, a, a broad term for God, and then Yahweh, God's covenant name, and then Adonai, God as Master, God as Lord. David is recognizing God's Lordship. And David's own position underneath God's absolute kingly rule. These terms are stacked up. They're showing God's comprehensive, absolute, supreme quality over any other God in any other place at any other time. David goes on in verse 3. He says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The good that David has in God in verse 2 that extends out to the people of God. Those who are also God-fearers are part of David's delight. Maybe David is thinking about his best friend, Jonathan. Or maybe he's thinking upon his mighty men who fought alongside of him. Those that trusted in Israel's God are those whom David delights in. Then there is a verse of contrast in verse 4. 
The sorrows of those who run after another God, another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David contrasts the saints in the land from verse 3 with those who are physically running after another God. Maybe not always physically, sometimes metaphorically, but they are uh, allying... They are in allegiance to these other gods, and they're fleeing quickly to anyone but the God that David has just described so comprehensively. We think about another history lesson from just before David's kingship, 1 Samuel 5. The Philistines, they defeat the Israelites, they take the Ark of the Covenant, they bring it to the house of their god, Dagon, and God brings boils, a plague of tumors, upon the Philistines. These are the ones that worshipped another god and their sorrows literally multiplied. They've got tumors all over themselves. So David isn't going to worship like these Philistines do. He won't even take any of their names upon his lips. We've seen God's name in three different ways, but an idol name isn't even worth mentioning. In verse 5, we see that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Where there was pouring out, in verse 4, David is taking in. He's taking in God's blessings or quenching his hunger and his thirst. Again, in in, in 1 Samuel 21, when, when David was on the run from Saul and he comes to Nob and to Ahimelech, the priest, he's given a very specific bread, the bread of the presence to satisfy him and to sustain him. But it's not just bread and cup for David's present hunger and thirst. It's also David's destiny. He has said, you hold my lot. The blessings of God frame in David's life and his whole future. David continues to conceive of it in this way, thinking about the future. He says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in present places, in pleasant places places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These are likely not battle lines like when the Israelites drew up against the Philistines at different times, but a picture of unending flourishing, of geographic blessing. David's kingdom, as he moves toward his throne in 2 Samuel, continues to expand. In 2 Samuel 8, we read that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. But what about this beautiful inheritance? Is David reflecting toward the end of his life about what he'll leave to his family, to sons and daughters? What are we to make of this beautiful inheritance? That's a question that we'll answer in time. So this blessing that David is seeing, this sort of comprehensive blessing, not only of daily portion and cup, but of an expansion of his geographic sort of kingdom, it leads David David to to praise, to bless God in return. He says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. We read on and we read, I have set the Lord always before me. He is Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And when I hear this, I hear an ancient version of clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. 
David is saying that he will not be shaken. Nothing can come against him that will cause him to lose. God knows David intimately. God instructs David. God grants him wisdom. Such intimate knowledge and guidance becomes the basis for being unshaken, for always being steady. And again, we have so many pictures of this throughout, yes, First and Second Samuel, but even if you're not familiar with the Bible, even uh, if you just have a, a cultural conception of some of the biblical images, we can think about David in the face of Goliath. Where the Israelites were trembling with fear, David has confidence in God who fights for Israel. Therefore, he says in verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David is recounting God's many blessings and it's left him considering and confident in God's very presence and in God's future deliverance. So this leads to joy. David's life is sometimes seen as a, as a pure celebration. Many psalms record David's praises to God. and Obviously, we have some in this very psalm. He goes on in verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. We have an expansion from whole body praise to whole body protection. He will not be abandoned to Sheol, which is another word for the pit or the grave. David's confidence is is because of his prior experience, knowing God has preserved him, protected him, gave him uh, everything he needs bodily, uh, just sustained him. it's, It's there, his confidence is there because of his present reality and also his future expectations. And so if you're like me, if you're a a psalm reader on occasion, you, you, you turn to a psalm to be refreshed or to move your heart toward praise. You just love this psalm. But we reach the end of this line and we should stop for a minute. David has said that he will, God will not let him, the Holy One, see corruption. David has claimed that he will beat death. Imagine going to school or going to work talking to your neighbor or a friend, and they're just going on and on about the greatest weekend they had. Their kid got into an Ivy League college on Friday. They got their admittance letter. On Saturday, they won a boat, a, a, a drawing that they had entered at Ralph's. On, on Sunday, they had bet big. They bet fifteen grand on the Super Bowl, and they won. And so this guy, he's got all the confidence in the world. And on Monday, he tells you, on top of all that, he's never going to die. And you would probably think that he's crazy. (laughs) Probably question whether the rest of that is actually true or not. But there's some confidence here. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's confidence. But is this false confidence? As we think about it in our our second point, is, is David claiming something that cannot be true? We know something about confidence, right? Kids, when uh, you are, I don't know, I think I was a late bloomer, but around six or seven or eight, you start your first bike ride, and first you have training wheels on, and then mom and dad scarily, warily take the training wheels off, and for me and my twin brother, we really didn't know how to stop, so we just ran into trees, 
And that was a, that was a source of amusement for my uncle. Uh, but we, we tell our mom and dad that we can do it ourselves. I can do it myself. And we start riding and we figure out we have some balance. You get a little bit older and you become a teenager and you start making a lot of independent decisions that you think are really, really great. And I did that too. I thought drag racing a Buick versus an Oldsmobile was a really cool race uh, and something that was just a really intelligent idea. Uh, but often I would find myself telling my mom, stay out of my life. There's a cry for independence. It's to show my own assertive decision-making. We get older and older, and self-confidence is baked into the American dream. We're told over and over, believe in yourself. You can do this. Whatever house you want, whatever car you want, whatever career or spouse or experience or lifestyle you want, you can do this. Believe in yourself. And it's not just big things either, not the big ticket items. Maybe it's the relationship dynamics we want with our significant other or our parents or our kids. Or maybe it's just you've really prioritized binge-watching a show on a Saturday. It's a want. These are not bad things in and of themselves. But they sometimes spring up from a place of selfish ambition. And rather than receiving them as gifts, as blessings, as David is conceiving of many of these things, we end up demanding. We end up taking. Selfish confidence placed on our desires leaves us angrily striving to get more or bitter and unsatisfied because we can't get what we want. We start to live like we're little gods. Maybe you've all experienced this, either been with a child or been near a child who at the checkout uh, at a grocery store or at a Target begins to scream and pout and rage uh, because they cannot get the little toy or the treat that they want. They throw what's called a temper tantrum. They've got something that they desperately want that they just have to have and they'll scream and cry until you give in and give it to them. It's funny that we think that we grow out of throwing temper tantrums. We do this too. When we don't get what we want, we give our spouses the silent treatment. Or we'll steal company time when we don't feel like we're being appreciated. Who cares about another 45 minutes tacked on to my lunch hour? And maybe if you're like David and you're not happy in your marriage, you go and find someone else who will make you happy. Self-confidence in this vein is is really the type that says, I know what's best for me, and I'm going to do everything in my power to get it, no matter what. And it actually leaves us enslaved to working out our own happiness and blessing, and we shirk off any true confidence in God's care. And we're all guilty here. We're all fallen, just like David. A few chapters after his throne has been installed, Many of us know the story of his relationship with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. David falls into grievous sin. He has an affair and then he has Uriah killed. 
But this is not a new condition according to the Bible. The book of James says that our unmet desires even move us toward murder. Perhaps James had David in mind. Israel too, even with God's blessings poured out on them, they trusted not in God but in themselves. Jeremiah 3.19, God is speaking and he says, How would I set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations? And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. So what do we need? Just some more humility? And if only that were enough, it'd be great. But our, our self-confidence, indeed where we place our trust and, and the unchecked desires of our hearts, those things, they, they start to turn into demands. And when we don't get those demands, we, we rage like the little kid at the checkout line. And we, and we rage to the point of sin. That's worthy of condemnation. That's worthy of the wrath of God. David has actually painted a picture of us in verse 4. We're like those who run after other gods. And we start finding that our wounds have multiplied, trying to cope with, getting, with not getting what we want. Now, friends, brothers and sisters, a little self-confidence isn't a bad thing. This, this sermon comes with a little asterisk. Paul says that in Christ we don't have a spirit of timidity, but of power. And it's not a cry against human knowledge, like knowing your stuff before you go to a job interview, or or recognizing that you've been gifted skills, and working to grow those things and sharpen them. But we need to see the many places where we set false confidence in our own schemes, on our own powers, on our own thinking to save us, to bring us the greatest joys, the most security. History lesson, uh, another history lesson, uh, comes right out of 1 Samuel again. The Israelites did this very thing when they dragged out the ark of God in 1 Samuel 4. I'm sure David grew up hearing this story. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they, they drag out this ark, God's localized presence, this treasure in Israel, and they bring it out like some trophy that's going to fight their battle for them. And they place so much confidence in it, and it does nothing for them. Because their confidence should have been in God, and not in the ark. 30,000 men died. Our many places of false confidence may not result in 30,000 people dying. Pray to the Lord that that does not happen. But our places of false confidence are very destructive. You need to know and remember the source of true confidence. So where does David get his confidence? Where should we rightly place ours? It's not in himself, but it's in a promise. And so we move from false confidence to point number three, true confidence. David has not gone nuts when he has said that he won't see corruption. Yes, he has confidence beyond the pit or the grave, but it is confidence in another. 
It's true confidence and a promise. And so we we turn to our New Testament and we see two pillars of the New Testament, Peter and Paul, picking up on this particular psalm and talking about David seeing this sort of future trust in a promise that would be fulfilled. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, Peter and Paul, they speak these words of David and they both reason like we do. They say, David has gone the way of the worms. David is dead. David, his flesh knew corruption. Yet David's knowing confidence, a a true confidence that went beyond the grave, rested not only in God's preservation of his life, but in the promises that he had received from God. God had spoken to David in 2 Samuel 7, and he says, I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Peter talks about this in Acts chapter 2. David, hearing these promises, And knowing God's faithfulness, David foresaw and spoke about this beautiful inheritance. But this inheritance wouldn't be like how we conceive of an inheritance. Maybe some of us have had loved ones die and we get left uh, a trust fund or a home or a set of collectible spoons. This inheritance was a person. It was a son. And Jesus is that son. And Jesus himself had every reason for confidence. Yes, David toppled Goliath. Yes, the Israelites sang praises to him. David had killed his ten thousands. But Jesus was shown to be far greater. Our New Testament shows Jesus' power over disease, over demons, over the wind and the waves. Yet Jesus submitted himself to death to become acquainted with the pit, with the grave. Why? Because the way to an inheritance is through death. And it wasn't David's death and it wasn't Solomon's death that could earn this inheritance, but the death of a perfect king. Jesus was God's promise to David fulfilled. And the way for Christ to fulfill the promise that his own father had made to David was to submit himself fully to God. And he did. For Jesus, it wasn't clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. It was tearful tearful eyes and a, a tumultuous heart because Jesus knew he had to lose. And it wasn't just to give David an inheritance. It was to deal with the real consequences of our sin. The wrath that you and I deserve for our sins. All that wrath was poured out on Christ and he drank down the full cup of God's anger. Where David knew good and abundance and blessing, Jesus knew no good in those moments of anguish. He had an abundance of sorrow as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Still, Christ's confidence was in the Father. When Jesus, in that human anguish, desired to be kept by God, he said, 
Not my will be done, but yours. He became acquainted with Sheol, with the pit, with the grave for you and for me. And yet he did not stay there. Jesus was the true Holy One. Never seeing final corruption, but being raised up three days later. And as he was raised, he offers up his inheritance to us by faith. An inheritance that goes beyond our graves. Psalm 16 ends, uh, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maybe you've heard about this path of life. Maybe you've seen it before. It happens to be behind my head. There it is. John 14, 6. Jesus has said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And his desire for you and for I, me, is for us to place our confidence in a true promise. A promise fulfilled in Christ at his death and in his resurrection. Jesus Christ the Son who is now at the Father's right hand interceding for us and who has promised to return. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of Jesus Christ are yes. God has made and declared a promise and affirmed it as true in Christ's own blood. This promise will never be revoked. This promise will never waver. This promise will never change. And so we can, like David, know that our lot is safe. Not only today, not tomorrow or the next week, the next year, the next decade, that our future in this life and beyond this life, in the life to come, that it is safe in Christ Jesus by faith. His life has become our abundant portion. We're now invited to drink and eat from the king's table because we have an inheritance by faith. An inheritance also conveys family. You are sons and daughters of this king. He has given you the greatest portion. We have confidence to come to Him again and again. To seek Him for preservation and refuge as David did. Even when his circumstances changed. Even when his life was in the balance. He cried out to the Lord. Knowing that the Lord would keep him. Both in this life and in the life to come. We can cry out to God to keep us from false confidences. Because His grace is for us. And His Spirit is with us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the promise that we have in Christ. A promise that demonstrates your love to us in our sinfulness. A promise that secures our inheritance in Christ's own blood. A promise to keep us, never to leave us or forsake us. And a promise to return one day. We pray that you would keep us until that time. In Jesus' name, amen.